scripture reading today is Psalm 16. You can find it in your pew Bible and on page 538. Give you a second to get there. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me in the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The word of the Lord. I want to uh, commend the great deal of effort that has already gone into this vacation Bible school that we have to look forward to this week. And uh, just to encourage you to continue praying for the week ahead. Uh, There's not only been a lot of work with the decorations, there's been a lot of prayer that's gone into it too, and we're excited about this opportunity to be a blessing to our congregation and to the community, many of whom do not know the Lord, and just as a chance for uh, to gather children together to demonstrate in our love and to explain with our words who is Jesus and why it matters that he came to this earth. So it's an exciting week. I commend your prayers. Also, I want to uh, begin putting on your radar Sandy Island. We've got that coming up soon, and uh, it's going to be an exciting retreat. There's information about that in your worship bulletin, but please do begin putting that before you, keeping mindful of it. It's just around the corner, and frankly, I'm really excited about it. It's it's one of these things where to get a church-wide retreat, to get a church to actually do that is pretty amazing. So to inherit something that's already in place is just, I mean, that's a gift. I have pastor friends that are jealous of me because that's part of what we do as a congregation already. So let's, uh, let's continue to be mindful of that and look forward to it. This morning we are in Psalm 16, which again is on page 538 of the, the Bible in the rack in front of you. If you're just joining us this summer, we are now partway through a series entitled, Walking with God in the Meantime, the Christian Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. And the Psalms are a collection of songs and hymns in the Old Testament of the Bible that give poetic expression to the realities of living in a fallen world, a world uh, where things don't work the way they're supposed to all the time. And they help shape our perspective and fuel our hope as we try to live out our faith in the midst of a fallen world, a world that suffers from sin and brokenness, a world that doesn't work, a world given to decay. There is something wrong with the decay 
in this world around us. And you don't even have to be a Christian to notice that or to have a problem with things like our, our bodies aging and not working the way they ought to, uh, whether through disease or injury or illness, or to have a problem with financial decay. So pensions and home equities that are now a fraction of what they once were. Or relational decay, to have a problem with that. If you just think back to your three closest friends in high school, how many of them have you talked to in the last year? Or the last five years? Or 25 years? Now, there might be natural explanations for something like that, but it's still kind of sad when you think about how close you once were and now how far you are. We have a problem with the decay that we see going on in this world around us, and perhaps the most noticeable evidence of our problem with that is our culture's infatuation with preserving youth. We buy age-defying wrinkle creams. We shop at stores called Forever 21, which is just ridiculous. But, you know, we push off commitments and decisions that mark responsible adulthood until the mid and late 30s now. So we can spend our money on video games or bar hopping or the latest technology and fashion, playing the field with all of the pleasure and none of the commitment all the while trying to kind of scratch and claw to hold on to some semblance of the satisfaction we currently have, knowing all the while it's slipping through our fingers. Pretending that the decay's not there, trying to make today last forever, but you can't stop it. You can't wish it away. You can't hide it, at least not forever. Whether I like it or not, the gray hairs are beginning to show up there. You can only pretend so long, and then you're standing over the grave of someone you love. You meet that diagnosis that's not good. The people you look to in life for satisfaction walk away. This world is given to corruption and decay. But the problem, the problem is not our desire for preservation and satisfaction. That's not the problem. In fact, God has wired us to want such things, to desire eternal satisfaction. It's part of our DNA, if you will, as humans made in God's image. The problem is our tendency to look for it in things that are just as prone to decay as we are. And it's into this decaying world that Psalm 16 speaks with fresh hope of God's sufficiency. That God alone is able to preserve and satisfy our lives, and he does so ultimately through our resurrection with Christ. There is a lasting satisfaction that comes from treasuring God himself amid the decay and to looking forward to how he's going to deal with that decay in the end through our future resurrection. And all of that encourages us neither to cling hopelessly to things that are fading, nor to despair as though decay and death will win. Because God wins. 
And in Christ, life wins. That's what Psalm 16 is going to tell us. So let's pray together as we look at at this chapter. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and for how you have given your word to us to make yourself known and to speak to the problems in this world, to the problems in our lives, with hope and with a word that you alone are sufficient. May we hear your voice and may our eyes be opened to that truth this morning. May our hearts be changed to treasure you more and this world less. Do it among us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So God alone is able to preserve and satisfy our lives. I want you to notice first the language of satisfaction throughout Psalm 16. We want to enjoy life and delight in and find pleasure in it. And that's what this psalm is about, our satisfaction and pleasure. Verse 2, I have no good apart from you. He, he wants what is good. Verse 6, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. It's a picture of land and property in abundance and of good quality, an enjoyable inheritance. So pleasure, delight. Verse 9, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. He's delighting. He's satisfied. He's rejoicing. Verse 11, you fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He wants pleasure. He's looking for pleasure. Furthermore, we want pleasure and satisfaction to be preserved. We want it to last forever. And again, so does this psalm. Look at verse, uh, the first two verses here. Preserve me, O God. So keep me safe, protected, secure. Preserve me. For in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. David, who wrote this psalm, his basic plea is that God would preserve him and satisfy him. He wants his joy to last forever. Again, look at the last line of the psalm in verse 11. At your hand are pleasures forevermore, eternal Pleasures. He wants pleasures that will last. So the question is, what is the object of his pleasure? What is the object of his satisfaction and delight? And he answers it in verse 2. You are my Lord, my King. Apart from you, I have no good thing. The object of of David's lasting joy is God himself. Not what God gives him. It's not the gifts or the life experiences or the friends or the family or the success and so on, but God himself. That's his plea in verses 1 through 2. And verses 3 through 8 go on to describe how They go on to describe God's unique ability to preserve and satisfy his life. David wants to take joy in God himself because God alone is able to preserve and satisfy his life. Now, verse 3 is kind of difficult 
to understand as we move into this next section, kind of what it means, what it's doing here. The best sense I can make of it is that David is specifying who he's talking to here. So this is the address. These are the people he's speaking to. He addresses the saints in the land, the noble or glorious one in whom he delights, which is really a colorful way of describing the people of God. So the word saints means those who are set apart for worship and service to God. Now that word saints has come to be used in a lot of circles today to specify kind of a special class of Christian, somebody who's extra holy, extra, done extra good things. It never means that in the Bible. It's never used that way in the Bible. The word simply means those who have been set apart as God's own people, those who belong to God. That's whom David is addressing, God's people. He wants the people of God, whom he enjoys and delights in, to know that their full joy and delight is found only in God himself. That's where we find lasting satisfaction. And he continues to make this point in verse 4 by setting up a contrast. So he compares God and his sufficiency to the insufficiency of false gods. If you look at verse 4 with me, the sorrows of those who will, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. So in other words, if you look to something other than God to find lasting joy, you will find increasing sorrow instead. Think about that. Increasing sorrow as you look to something other than God for lasting joy. Why? Because you're asking a created thing to act like a creator. You're asking a decaying thing to act like a savior. In the ancient world, these false gods took very con concrete forms, so statues made of wood or stone or metal. In many parts of the world, they still take a relatively concrete shape, literal idols. We've become a bit more sophisticated in the West. We think we've grown out of idolatry and the superstition of bowing down to a block of wood. Yet in reality, we've simply upgraded to a more sophisticated form. We're still looking for life and satisfaction and escape and preservation in the things of this world, in created things, whether it's money, material possessions. You know, if I can just have that car, that car, that's all I need for lasting satisfaction in life. If I can just drive that thing or that summer home or whatever. Or we look for it in family. If I can just have an intact family, Children who actually like school, who are good athletes and get scholarships, that's all I need. That's all I need in life. You know? Or education, or you know, beauty, success. The list goes on and on and on. But again, there's no stopping the decay. The things of this world make bad gods because they're created. They're not the creator. And as part of creation, they are all subject to the same decay that we are. A decay and corruption that stretches clear back to the beginning of time. You know, the world didn't always work this way. 
The world was not always decaying like it is today. When God created this world and the first humans, Adam and Eve, there was a beautiful relationship of trust and joy in a whole and wholesome world. But it was human rebellion that set things awry. So Adam and Eve were not content with letting God be king over his creation. They wanted to decide for themselves what was satisfying and lasting in life. And so they rejected his reign in sin. It's what we call sin, rebellion, insurrection. And that is when the world was given over to decay in direct response to their rebellion. Relationships were broken. Bodies were broken. The creation, the ground, was cursed and broken. And worst of all, humanity's relationship with God was broken. What was made good in the beginning was made subject to decay. That's what we mean, by the way, when we use the word fallen world. We live in a fallen world. That's what we're talking about. And we live with it every day. And the idols, the false gods, they can't do a blessed thing to stop it. No matter how hard we try, how hard we want to pretend, they can't do a blessed thing. And so the psalmist refuses to pay them homage, to pour out their blood libations, their pagan sacrifices, or to take their name on his lips. And he encourages us to do likewise, not to trust in created things, the things of this world, but instead to trust in and treasure God himself. Only God is able to satisfy and preserve life. Take a look at how verses 5 through 6 to describe how verses 5 through 6 describe this. God himself is our inheritance. Verse 5, and I, I read here from the recent revision of the New International Version. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now this is language of land and inheritance. Portion, cup, lot, boundary lines. We talk about an inheritance today when someone dies. We inherit their stuff. Whether it's a gold watch or a house or a corporate empire. Ancient Israel had an inheritance as well. Each tribe was given a portion of land as their own as a gift from God. But the psalmist is not talking about being satisfied in land or stuff. He's using the imagery of land and inheritance to describe the satisfaction that we have in God himself. He is our portion. He is our cup. He is our beautiful inheritance. God himself is the object of our lasting joy and satisfaction. God is sufficient. He is enough. There is no greater pleasure in this world than to know and be known by our creator and savior. This is what we were made for. And it's what brings glory and honor to God. I don't know if you've ever had the, the experience of discovering something that seems as if 
you were made for it, and it was made for you. And the, the satisfaction and joy that comes from that. Maybe it's picking up that golf club, and it's as if it's an extension of my arm. We were just made for each other. It just fits. You know, or, or maybe it's stepping into that shoe, and it's as though it was crafted in heaven specifically for my foot. And it just, it's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had something like that. Maybe it's a job or a spouse. Now, take that feeling of delight, multiply it by infinity, and stretch it across eternity, and now you begin to get a sense of the kind of joyful satisfaction that God is offering us when he gives us himself. We were made for him. We were made for him. And we bring him honor by delighting in him that way. God wants to give us himself. He wants us to delight in him. This is the God who made us. And this is the God who guides us. Even in this meantime, look at verses 7 and 8. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. He guides. Even at night, when I can't see clearly, my heart instructs me through God, through His Spirit. He's my guide. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. He is with me. In the midst of this fallen world, I will not be shaken. I will stand secure. This is the God who guides us. This is the God who will deliver us from decay. Listen again to the promises of verses 9 through 10. Again, here from the revised NIV. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body or my flesh will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Think about what's being said here. In verse 9, he's rejoicing knowing that his flesh, his body, will rest secure. No wrong will befall it. Verse 10, his confidence is that God will not abandon him, including his physical body, to the grave, to the realm of the dead. God won't let his flesh, his skin, bone, tissue, sinews, he won't let his flesh see decay or corruption. The very decay we've been lamenting, the very decay that pervades this fallen world will not affect his body. Rather, verse 11, he will find true and lasting life in God's path, true joy in his presence and pleasures that last forever. Death will not ultimately overtake him. The grave will not win. God will preserve and satisfy his life, the whole thing, body and all. And so he is free to rejoice in God's inheritance, trusting in Him, and avoiding both the disappointment of idols and the despair of decay. That is a massive promise to defy death. And on first read, it doesn't even make sense. And we know 
by observation and by science, that this is not what happens to someone when they die. Bodies turn to dirt in the grave. And nobody lives forever. This is just what we can see and observe as common sense, right? Everybody faces decay. That's what we've been arguing the whole time so far. So what exactly is he suggesting here? Is this merely wishful thinking? Is this an exaggeration meant to kind of illustrate the quality of life, of whatever life we get, so long as we're here, it'll kind of feel like that? Is it meant to be spiritualized away? So the promise that our bodies won't decay is true of our souls in heaven, but not really true of our bodies themselves. And this is important to ask because these promises, as thrilling and kind of unbelievable as they are, don't actually seem to stop the suffering and the decay that we face today. They don't actually seem to put off that, that process of decay in our bodies or our world. In fact, they can leave us, these promises can leave us quite frustrated and, and desperate when they don't come true. And we watch our lives fall apart. So what sense do we make of them? In what way does God finally show his sufficiency in preserving and satisfying our lives amid this decaying world? And how does that fuel our trust in him and our perseverance amid the decay? If we limit these promises and our desire for eternal satisfaction to this life, to this world, we will end our days in disappointment but they were never meant to be limited to this life because life itself is not limited to the scope of this world. Rather, the way that God shows his sufficiency in preserving and satisfying our lives is through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection with him. Follow me here closely. If all of this decay that we're talking about is a result of human sin, as we argued, argued earlier, then that human sin needs to be dealt with. That's precisely what Christ did on the cross. He dealt with human sin and its consequences. He lived the life we could not live and died the death we should have died as a result of our sin in order to deal decisively with it. But we don't only need someone who will deal with the cause of the decay. We need someone who will deal with the effects of it as well. And that's what the resurrection is about. Death and decay do not get the last word. Life gets the last word. Life through Jesus. Now, the word resurrection, it's kind of a big word. It simply means to live again. So, to have been dead, really dead, and to live again. Now, if you're new to Christianity, and you're kind of hearing talk about this, you know, the dead rising, you may be tweeting right now that the pastor just lost it. You know, I thought I came to church, and all of a sudden we're talking about zombies or something like that. Hang with me for a moment, okay? Think about the decay in the world. 
the decay in our lives. Think about the possibility of a God who is all-powerful and able to create life, and then think about what it might look like for him to deal with that decay. New life, okay? We need to understand the resurrection better. That is the way that God finally shows his sufficiency in preserving and satisfying our lives. So, I want to clarify four facts about the resurrection in Scripture. Okay? First, resurrection is bodily. It's bodily. We're not just talking about souls here. Jesus rose bodily. His body was in the grave, and it rose, he rose, all of him, three days later. Same body, but now transformed. So the marks, in the na- marks from the nails were, were still there. That's how some of the disciples were able to recognize him. But this body was no longer subject to the decay of the world. It was a renewed body, a resurrected body. A body fit for eternal existence in a new earth. Revelation 21, Isaiah 65, different passages like that, and you can... Google them later if you want. Talk about this thing called a new heavens and a new earth. God is going to remake his creation in the end, and there is a resurrection body fit for that remade creation. The resurrection is bodily. It's in this same body that Jesus now sits in heaven at the right hand of God. He's still fully human, even as he's fully God. If the resurrection is not bodily then death has not really been conquered. Then death and decay still win. But the resurrection is, in fact, bodily. That's the first point. Second, resurrection is for everyone. Resurrection is for everyone. When we hear the term, we almost, think, almost always think exclusively of Christ. But resurrection was the hope of all ancient Israel and the early church. In John chapter 11, when a man named Lazarus was sick, and his family sent for Jesus so that he could come and heal him and stop him from dying, Jesus intentionally delayed his visit so that he could show this family and all who saw that their hope in the resurrection was available only through him. And so Lazarus dies before Jesus gets there. And when Jesus finally arrives, Martha, Lazarus' sister, says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now listen to Martha's response. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What's she talking about? For ancient Israel and the early church, the resurrection was something that all God's people were looking forward to at the end of time. Jesus also affirms this in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. He says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear God's voice and come out. 
those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection is for everyone. Martha understood that. What she didn't understand was how Jesus took something that was waiting for the end of time and broke into the present with it. And that's the third point. So resurrection is bodily. Resurrection is for everyone. Third, in Christ, we experience resurrection in part now and fully when he returns. In Christ, we experience resurrection in part now and fully when he returns. Jesus continues the conversation with Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Jesus, death is not the end of the story. Though we may, and if the Lord tarries, all of us will experience death and decay in this life, yet we shall live. And whoever already lives and believes in Jesus, whoever already has eternal life, shall never ultimately die. The resurrection is already at work in us. When someone places their faith in Jesus, who recognizes their sin, that they've got nothing before God, that Christ is everything, and all they have is the hope of Him, and they place that faith in Christ, Something about them dies, and something is born anew. So they die to sin. They die to this world. They die to themselves. They are born again to God. New life by His Spirit. Eternal life. To be born again, that's a word we hear a lot. That's resurrection language. It means something has died, and something's being born again. To be something when we, when we receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life. So according to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it's through the resurrection of Jesus that we are born again to new life. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection is already at work in us with new life. Theologians use a big word called regeneration. It's the, first step, it's the first step or the first stage in our resurrection. So part of the resurrection is already true of us. We have been born again through faith in Christ. Yet it's not complete. It's not complete. It's not even complete when a Christian dies and goes to be in God's presence in heaven. We will be there with God. We'll be enjoying Him, making much of Him, magnifying His glory and majesty at rest and at peace. But we're still waiting for Christ's return to the earth when the resurrection will happen, as, as Paul puts it in Philippians 3. We eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, what we're wearing right now, to be like his glorious body, a resurrection body fit for eternity in God's presence. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes our future hope like this. For since death came through a man, the resurrection comes through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Christ has already been resurrected. We're waiting for the completion at the end of the day when Jesus returns. And this imagery of firstfruits comes from the harvest. So ancient Israel would take the first batch of the harvest, and they bring it to the temple as an offering to the Lord in anticipation of a greater harvest to come. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, anticipating the rest of his family to follow. All who are in Christ, all who will enjoy lasting satisfaction in God's presence forever in a new heaven and new earth, a renewed creation fit for our resurrected bodies, and fit for the very presence of God. So, therefore, fourth, resurrection means that death and decay do not win. Resurrection's bodily, it's for everyone. We experience it in part now in Christ, fully when he returns. Fourth, it means that death and decay do not win. Now, this does not mean that they do no harm, that the pain and the suffering and the sorrow we feel because of the death and decay in this world aren't real somehow. That's not what it means. It does mean that they will not prevail, not for those in Christ. God will keep his promise in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon me to the grave nor let your Holy One see decay. He will show his sufficiency in preserving and satisfying our lives such that as we treasure him now, we're able to face decay with hope and even with joy, knowing that Christ is our sufficient treasure and he will be faithful to deliver us in the end. And the evidence for this is God's eternal son, Jesus Christ. These very promises in Psalm 16 functioned as a prophecy of how God would preserve and satisfy Jesus' life. Not by avoiding the grave, but by carrying him through it and raising him victoriously over it. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says to the crowds in Jerusalem, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, now quoting Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would not, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. God alone is able to preserve and satisfy our lives, and he does so ultimately through our resurrection with Jesus. And so we find in Christ not only the power of lasting satisfaction, but also the model of perseverance amid the decay. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy set before Jesus, lasting satisfaction with his Father, that he endured the pain and suffering of the cross. So may we set our hope on the resurrection to come, trusting in Jesus to carry us through and treasuring him in the meantime and forevermore. That's the vision of Psalm 16 for us. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much to think about as we wrestle and make sense of how you are putting a definitive stop to the decay in our worlds, in our lives. The fact that you are our sufficient inheritance, that you are enough to satisfy us, that as we watch the things around us decay, it does not mean that our joy is dissipating because our joy is in you. And yet, that decay is not good, and so you are dealing with it through the resurrection. You promised that through Jesus. You will make good on your promises in the end for all of us, that we might fully delight in you. God, help us. Help us make sense of that. Help us delight in you more, knowing that you are enough and that you are faithful, knowing that death does not get the final say for those in Christ. Change us. Make our hearts sing before you in our satisfaction in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.